This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode 58 of the audio guide to Babylon 5, Ship of Tears. Telepaths! 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 <laughs> Are you sure it's not Ship of Tears? Because, you know, it could be. <laughs> I, uh, what? I don't even know what that means. It just, I, I was it's reading it. Since, <laughs> it's been a while since we've had a title controversy. That's true. Yeah, um, Bester's back, and 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 there's just a lot of stuff that happens in this one. That sort of, it's sort of like a lighthouse, uh, blinking in Morse code, saying plot points are being established here that will be of (laughs) use to you in future episodes. (laughs) The phrase "we have a weapon," and then we're gonna we're gonna focus on that uh, a lot, but. Um, it had been a while since I had seen Ship of Tears, and I had forgotten that the way it ends just sort of feels like a big old um, setup for things that are going to happen down the road. Um, mm-hmm. We have in our extended family on this podcast a control group. His name is Stephen Shapansky. He is <laughs> married to one of our co-hosts, and I... Before we even get started, I really want to jump into the Stephen check-in and see what he thought of <laughs> Ship of Tears. Uh, he would be he would be thrilled to have this happen so early. He actually, just before I came in here into the studio to record the podcast, he directed me, speak well of this episode, because it was really good. It was directed <laughs> by Mike Fahar, you know. Yep. <sighs> which, which is true. He actually, he was very excited about this all the way through. Um, in part, of course, from the direction, but, uh, but I think he just really, really liked the episode in general. He was so excited to see Bester back when you know you finally get the the shot of the interior of his Star Fury. He was like, "Whoa!" He said, "F yeah." He didn't say "F yeah." Uh, <laughs> Bester's back, um, and he was very excited about the new um, the new Star Furies. He liked the way they look. The uh, you know how the the lights reflect on the people's faces when they're sitting in them. He was super mm-hmm. excited about that and wondered if Mike Vehar had anything to do with the decision to make that be a, a visual. I have no idea if that's the case um he i think i think the only thing that he was not particularly uh keen on is the fact that once again we don't have like this is about bester he's a telepath and we still don't have our telepath in this episode at all right he actually in the middle of the episode he was like oh yeah but we don't have the 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 what is it the who is it and i was like telepath he's like yes she's been gone for so long i have forgotten her function let alone her name he actually forgot the word telepath because it's been so long (laughs) since lita has been in the show um so that was that was kind of the only the only minor uh, minor quibble but that was more of a joke than anything else he he loved the the slow zoom in on sheridan when he was talking to delenn and you can't see who he's talking to at first until mm-hmm. the camera gets there he just i mean the, the episode ended steven was literally waving his hands in the air and saying that was pretty awesome and like he was he, but but again he came back to the telepath thing because he said you know the really sad thing is when sheridan was saying we have a weapon we have a weapon he was referring to bester and not their own telepath poor telepath it's just like oh oh uh, goodness and then he got up walked over to the television picked up the dvd box box set <laughs> pointed to lita's face on the cover and just tapped it and said, see, now now is her time. She should take center stage. If this is all a build up to that, then I'll be okay. And I was just like, I'm not saying a word. <sighs> and silly, meanwhile, silly. we must remind him 
that she's not even in the opening credits of the show. Nope. But apparently being on the cover of the box set uh, featured, Means featured something. prominently there is, is enough to, <laughs> to get his hackles up. Well, <laughs> it doesn't take much to get his hackles up. But I wonder if I wonder if he was just super primed to like this one because it wasn't Sick Transit Veer. That could be possible. Although the fact that we're watching them two weeks apart means that I, I feel like the distaste of the previous episode had mostly worn off because often he doesn't even remember what we had watched <laughs> the previous week. I think he was just excited. And and the fact that, that it was a Mike Vehar directed episode, which he, again, he pegged before it came up. Like, you know, the, the cold open started and things were happening. And he just kind of goes, hmm, interesting. A handheld <laughs> shot. And then as soon as Mike Vehar's name pops up in the credits, he's like, I knew it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't, I was looking away when the credits came up and I didn't mm-hmm. immediately cotton to the fact, but uh, as the episode goes on, I'm like, Shannon, is this a Mike Vehar episode? And yeah, she, she yeah. confirmed that mm-hmm. it was. And, uh, and you know, Mike Vehar, he tries Mike Vehar-er. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I love you or hate you right now. Maybe both. <laughs> well, the important thing is you're not indifferent to me. Let's <laughs> let's recap the previous episodes and then we'll get into our own reaction uh, to Ship of Tears. Uh, previously, the former Earth Alliance space station Babylon 5 has involved itself in two conflicts. One is an impending great war against the mysterious ancient race the Shadows, and the other is a counter-conspiracy against fascist forces on Earth allied with the Shadows who assassinated the president and put their own guy in charge. B-5 has seceded from the Earth Alliance, leaving all of its relationships open to renegotiation, including that with the Earth Alliance PSYCOR, the agency that firmly polices Earth's community of telepaths. In this episode, B-5's least favorite PSYCOP, Bester arrives at the station having discovered President Clark's alliance with the Shadows, finding alien influence on the Earth Alliance an unacceptable complication on the path to telepaths' supremacy. He offers Sheridan the chance to interfere with Earth's plan to deliver, quote, weapons components, close quote, to the Shadows. Turns out those components are captured human telepaths implanted with neural interfaces allowing them to take over computer systems. And one of them is Bester's lover, Carolyn. He is not amused. Captain Sheridan's war becomes his war, although Sheridan and Ivanova have no illusions about whose side he is really on. Meanwhile, Jakar's patience has run out. He wants to be involved in Sheridan and Delenn's new alliance, and that means Delenn can no longer avoid a confession. She knew the Shadows were allied with the Centauri's assault on Narn all along. She brings him into the War Council just in time for Garibaldi to figure out the connection between telepaths and the Shadows. The Shadows are vulnerable to telepathy, and were probably using the kidnapped telepaths to try to fight fire with fire. Sheridan seizes on a moment of hope. Quote, we have a weapon, close quote, against the shadows. And that was Ship of Tears. Another completely nondescriptive title for a fairly monumental episode, wouldn't y'all say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fair enough, yes. Shannon, what did you think of Ship of Tears? Um, I thought it was a very strong episode. Uh, I liked that... Even as we get this big chunk of information dropped into our laps uh, with not very much exposition to it, it's mostly action and investigation and discovery. 
JMS also takes the opportunity to touch base here and there. Um, I had forgotten that this was the episode where ISN came back, and we see that ISN is apparently no longer ISN, but completely controlled by the government, um, that the command staff realizes that and turns it off immediately. Who um, knew that Roger Ailes lived to the 23rd century? <laughs> um, but the, the fact that that little component right there shows that you know, again, people on Earth are not do not have access to the information they need. Uh, that they are still being fed whatever. If ISN, the only network capable of broadcasting to the colonies all the way out, is showing this kind of propaganda, what must be happening with the local news? Um, how bad has that been taken over? We, it it gives us insight, but you know, it, it it's worrisome. It's really worrisome that this is going on. Um, and it shows us this lovely little bit of um, character again, how Stephen is kind of optimistic. You know, yeah, and, and ISN is back. We're going to have information again. Ivanova is assuming the worst, and she's proven right. And she hates that she's proven right. Uh, and then, so you, you get... Know, at least in the face of new evidence, uh, Franklin immediately shifts into, well, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, and, and that's, yeah, that's a point, too. But the fact that, you know, still his first impulse is optimism is still there. Uh, so we get this kind of information in the background and uh, bits and pieces that help round out the action going on in the episode. I love this. I mean, and not just because I was sitting next to somebody who was so thoroughly enjoying it as we watched. I, I really like it myself on its own merits. And I think we will get to talking about the scene between J- Delenn and Jakar. And I mean, that mm-hmm. scene just by itself is worth like twice the price of admission because it was just so fantastic. So, I mean, between moments like that and the excellent direction all around and then having Bester back. I mean, I am just a sucker for that character. He is, you know, it's 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 almost too bad he doesn't have a mustache because he could just be twirling it all the time, <laughs> but in a good way. Usually that's usually when I say something like that, I mean it as uh, an insult and this is this is delightful. Um I mean, I guess I could see how some people might not really not really dig it because it is a little bit over the top and a little bit in your face, but but for me, it just works on every single level. So every time he comes back, he just gets better. And I think here it's interesting to kind of learn a little bit more about his motivations. And I mean, it sounds like he's really got world domination on his mind. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's, yeah, twirl that mustache even harder, Bester. You go. Yeah. This is kind of the introduction to sort of explicit, you know, there's always been an undercurrent of suspicion and fear of Psycor and. Um, how they feel about how they feel about non-telepaths who get My a names. name. You know, they're called muggles this time around, and <laughs> um, mundanes. And that, that that's just sly because mundanes mm-hmm. is classic, um, classic fan snobbery against non-fans, and uh, JMS just appropriates that entirely for the um, psychor. That's kind of meta, but Bester makes it explicit in this episode telepaths don't at least as the represented by the psychor don't think much about normals and they see that in it's going to be inevitable that they are going to be ruling the roost and earth and bester's entire motivation in this episode is the shadows 
and President Clark represent a threat to my plans and my mm-hmm. telepaths. So it's time for an alliance of convenience. Um, does that track with the bester that you know and loathe from previous episodes? I think so, um, because we've seen before that, you know, Bester's focus has always been what is best for the telepaths. Um, And previously, our impression was that Clark was best for the telepaths compared to Santiago for for whatever reason, because the Psychops seemed to be supporting um, that assassination. Yeah, and Psychor Uh, endorsed Clark. uh, Right. Exactly. And you know, for the first time, they endorsed a candidate was the impression, if I remember correctly, and they endorsed Clark. Um, but, you know, the minute Bester realizes that uh, Clark is a threat because he is being influenced by these shadows that are a threat, um, he's immediately, you know, looking for what will help me now. Uh, and that seems to me very in character for him. Yeah, you know, Psychor is revealed in this episode. You know, yes, there's something sinister about uh, the about Psychor and uh, what Bester's intentions are for telepaths versus humanity, but this also indicates to us. This episode shows us that Psychor is no more monolithic than any other organization or any other government in Babylon 5, um, that Psycop who was hanging out with Morden and the Earth Senator in uh, the first episode of this season right. and Bester are not on the same page. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I just love about Babylon 5 is is always, always shades of gray. You don't have any culture or any organization that is completely monolithic you know they seem like it at the outset and a lot of science fiction shows and even books sometimes you know just just go with that you just just stick with that you know i can think of countless as much as i love doctor who think about how many planets there are that's just the entire planet is desert the entire planet Mm -hmm. is jungle the entire planet is water with a few islands you know it's just you know that's an easy sort of shortcut and babylon 5 chooses not to take that shortcut because the more you delve into any of these little pieces of the show the more you see that they're, you know, they're they're not monoliths. They're they they have many many facets, and that's that's something that's just awesome. Yeah, we also get some creepy stuff going on in here that reminds me of uh, some of the stuff that we saw with, um, oh, what was the name of the episode uh, where? Um, Don't ask uh, me. <laughs> yeah, I know it's my job now to forget uh, the episode where Dwight <laughs> Schultz shows up. Ah, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I I don't know the name of it, but I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. So, and they encounter a shadow allied alien, and we get a bunch of shadow allied aliens this time around that uh, Franklin has never seen before, uh, kills himself, and apparently smells real bad when he does, (laughs) because when... (laughs) Franklin and Sheridan inspect the body just before. So do we do we know that they are allies, or are they actually part of? Are are those part of the shadows? Are the are those are those the, beings like the face of the shadows? The corpse. Know, the corpse didn't look like the shadows that we've seen so far. And okay, and and we also saw some other aliens that we haven't seen before in uh, Carolyn's uh, memories. Right. We'll get to her in a minute. So. Yeah. Uh, just, I love the n- concept, the stuff that okay. trickles out in here about 
all of these allies and servants of the shadows that we've never seen before, races that we've never seen before, uh, suddenly, you know, continuing to emerge, it gives this almost a Lovecraftian kind of feel uh, Mm -hmm. to 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 the shadows. It makes the shadows seem all the more sinister, all the more embedded. There are things that we do not know about this universe. And it sort of builds and builds in this episode until finally the closing revelation that the shadows have started to move openly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like a neon sign. You know, the war is on, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I apologize. I, it had slipped my mind that we had seen the praying mantises before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do look kind of like praying mantises, don't they? <laughs> yeah. With glowing eyes, many glowing eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had kind of forgotten that we get that revelation. I didn't remember that the shadows had started attacking openly at the end of this episode. So I think it came as as, as big of a shock to me as it did to the characters on the show. Like, uh oh, it is on. I was like, oh no, mm-hmm. oh no, what happens now? Uh, so yeah, pretty pretty effective. I'm not going to call it a cliffhanger because I don't feel like you know there's there's nothing that's going to resolve that in the next episode. Um, at least <laughs> I would hope not because that would be really dumb. Um, so I just feel like it's a uh, uh, yeah, as you said early on, Chip, it's it's just kind of a, a precursor to the rest of the stuff that is going to be happening. And that's that's an exciting place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the subtlety. I didn't remember seeing this the last time I watched this, which has been a long while. But you've got that last shot of the shadows attacking the Brakiri ships. And just before we had one of those panorama shots of the station being guarded, and we've had a couple of them. This episode reminding us that there's now an alliance guarding Babylon 5. It's no longer Earth Force. It's no longer just the Membari. We get different other ships. And one of the ships in that just in that last shot was a Prakiri ship. So the continuity of this is one of our allies. This is somebody who's helping us. And then we see the exact same kinds of ships being attacked by the shadows. I thought that was a clever touch by whoever decided to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Side note there. Thank goodness that technology continues to advance because the effects in this, the CGI stuff, as as in this entire season, you know, this is not stuff that they appear to have been able to pull off in season one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but mm-hmm. three years, but two years later, this it it just it just looks phenomenal. There's so much going on in the space scenes and things like that. You know, the the ships just sort of orbiting. Babylon 5 circling it. The Vree saucers and the Brakiri ships and the Minbari cruisers, um, which somebody somebody drafted from me in another podcast that was about (laughs) drafting spaceships. But that I apologize for nothing. (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, I would have I would have picked the White Star first if I was on that show, but I wasn't. (laughs) Uh. Anyway. Um. So. Side note completed, but yeah, I love the I love the CGI in this episode. Um, it really adds a lot to this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, going back to Bester real quick, uh, did he behave um, any believable way based on his previous uh, actions? Because it occurred to me, you know, yeah, he never he never scanned Ivanova, otherwise uh, she would right. have um, uh, raised punched the red him flag and left, but. <laughs> Um, 
but he apparently never scans anybody else. He behaves himself in this episode, and I find that intriguing. And possibly, you know, that seems like it would have been a, an irresistible temptation that he somehow resisted. Well, I don't know for sure that we can say he didn't. Um, he certainly doesn't act on anything uh, as far as the command staff goes right then and there. Um, and, you know, we we can tell for sure that he never actually tries to scan Ivanova since she doesn't react. I don't know that that's a guarantee that he wasn't um, trying to scan here and there. He, he We've seen in a previous mention um, for him at his level for a P-12 how hard it is to keep people out. So... I don't think we can guarantee anything other than if he did scan somebody, he was playing fair because he knows he needs this alliance at this time. Yeah, I kind of had the same thought that, you know, I don't think anybody but Ivanova would have any idea that he was scanning them. So I did I did find that a little bit strange, not so much from Bester's perspective, but from the perspective of, of everybody else, from Captain Sheridan. Like, mm-hmm. it, yeah, I mean, it was it was a smart thing to see if, if he scanned Ivanova, but I don't necessarily think that that translates to we should trust him for the rest of the time he's around. I mean, yeah. it surprised me that they didn't at least pull in, say, one Minbari telepath, just one to just be hanging out and, you know... It's not like right. the, the telepath would need to block him or anything, but just keep an, a, an eye out, a brain cell out. I don't know how you'd say that, but just keep it, <laughs> <laughs> keep tabs on whether or not Bester is scanning anyone. So I think if if we take it at face value and and believe that Bester didn't scan anybody else, and then I would say that that it's an, it is an interesting comment on Bester's character and how much he really wants this. Like he he. He's that dedicated to his his future of of telepath domination that he is willing to to compromise and and work with these guys uh, without trying to get into their heads. But then there's also the point that and I can't remember who said it if it was Sheridan or Franklin saying that like you know what's what would be the point of him scanning us now we've already done everything that we are planning on doing and. Uh, that's that is kind of a good point because they've already broken away. It's not like they're hiding anything really big at this point. But Bester doesn't know that. There could be all kinds of other information that would tempt him to to scan them. So I do feel like that's probably one of the the major weaknesses of this episode is the fact that they didn't take any kind of precaution, precautions at all beyond just making sure that Ivanova didn't didn't get scanned. Like I don't, I don't think that was quite enough. But I do buy at this point. I think seeing what what we saw from Bester this time, I would I would. Believe believe that he didn't try to scan them um, because I feel like the character that they're building for him is one that is uh, is very determined and has an awful lot of self-control, which I assume as a P12, you have to develop an awful lot of self-control mm-hmm. anyway. So I think that, that it's now believable to me that he wouldn't have scanned them. It's just not believable that they wouldn't have done something else to, to take precautions. Yeah. Or possibly... They also let him on the white star. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty bold. <laughs> Although he did, he had a pretty strong leverage to, to get onto the White Star and to, to be bar- part of that crew at that point. I'm trying to remember, was the White Star part before or after they discovered Carolyn? Before. Before. Okay, so never mind that. I, uh, what I was going to say is that for Bester, at least, this episode offers sort of two levels of commitment, which, you know, even if he had been scanning some of the command staff or some of the people earlier in the episode, once they discover that Carolyn, his lover, is one of the um, telepaths who's been taken by the shadows, you know, that's, you know, another motivation for him to even if he has found stuff that he could use, he's not going to do it right now. 
because the, mm-hmm. the stakes have been shifted even higher for him and even more personally than they were before when he just wanted to protect Telepaz in general. Very true. There's also a lovely sort of meta moment in him being on the White Star because he gets the chance to sit in the center seat. <laughs> and it's been, and, and, and to be fair, he got the chance to sit in the center seat of the Enterprise a few years before in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know, he it's almost a, it's almost Bester trying to appropriate the White Star and oh, yeah. JMS saying, you know. Walter, you should have had the opportunity to sit in the center seat in the uh, Enterprise a fair bit more. Let's get you. Let's get you there as well. <laughs> uh, I, that's kind of cool. But even cooler for me was the moment where Sheridan turns around, get the hell out of my chair. That <laughs> love that bit. There are two moments between Sheridan and Bester that just that was that was one of them. But the first one was when when he was when Sheridan was deciding whether or not to blow Bester out of the sky when they're having sort of the standoff right. from from Star Fury to Star Fury. And he's just like this long bit of silence. And you don't get silence like that on television very often, especially right. when it's sort of in the middle of a conversation. So I think it has an even bigger impact because of that. And then you get, you know, Sheridan being like, I'm thinking it over. Like, yeah, yeah, and and Walter Koenig did a beautiful job with that bit. I mean, it's mm-hmm. got to be hard enough to be sitting in this little cockpit set all by your lonesome, mm-hmm. delivering your dialogue, and yet the emotions across his face as he realizes for the first time, okay, this might not work. I should be a little worried. Uh, that was lovely. Yeah, of course he gets his bravado back when he's uh, walking when he's walking out of the hangar and he's mm-hmm. about to turn the corner. Although he knows, thanks because he's a telepath, that uh, security is all there, and he just like this 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 big blank eating grin. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, you you think I'm not welcome here or something like that. You know, he's yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And see, that's where I would have had, you know, like Erica said, at least one Mimbari telepath yep. standing among that pl- that troop just to, you know, remind him, hey, you know, we've got ways if we need them. But for whatever reason, they didn't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, my last question to you about this plot thread is, uh, was it really necessary to have the cosmic coincidence that one of those telepaths and indeed the first telepath that they pull out of the cryogenic tubes is his lover, Carolyn. I am never going to complain about coincidences because that's what, you know, great stories are built on coincidences. I will say, yes, that is a huge, huge one. And uh, it's very sort of convenient for the narrative of the story. But I'm, 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 I just guess I just don't care that much. It's fine. <laughs> I, I can care about coincidence when it's overused. I, JMS has never struck me as the type of writer who overuses coincidence. Um I think it helps it helps the story itself somewhat. It supports it to make it a little more believable, give Bester that last push into I'm, you know, at the moment my enemy of my enemy is my friend and I'm going to see this through. Um and, you know, JMS himself even brought up on the Lurker's Guide, uh, records some of his conversations from Usenet, where people apparently jumped all over him about that. And he's like, look, coincidence happens in real life. True. You don't complain when coincidence <laughs> happens in real life. And the person you haven't seen in weeks runs across your brain. And the very next day, hey, you run into them and, you know, you talk to each other. Nobody thinks anything of that. Um, why should fiction be any different? So... Here, here. 
closing out the telepath thread, at the end of this episode, or towards the end anyway, Sheridan is super excited. They have figured out that the shadows do not like telepaths. There is something about telepaths that bothers shadows, leads the one shadow vessel to not engage with the White Star. They surmise it's because Bester was on board and Bester is a powerful telepath. Sheridan says, we have a weapon. And throughout this entire episode, you know, the fact that the telepaths were being described as weapons components is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's expressly dehumanizing, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, the command staff is is somewhat horrified by that. Um, You can tell that even though Bester chose to keep that from them, he wasn't a big fan of the fact that they were being described by uh, other Earth Alliance people as weapons components. And then Sheridan kind of plunges into that kind of language. We have a weapon. He is so excited about having something that they can potentially use against the shadows that he kind of dehumanizes the telepaths himself, right? Yeah, that's... I I can understand why he might do it. This is... They have had so little luck with um, combating the shadows so far. They've been scrambling for ways other than pulling off these tricks and these, you know, very unorthodox maneuvers one-on-one. I'm sure it's been in the back of Sheridan's head, how the hell do we defeat a fleet of these things? Um, So I can understand him in the heat of the moment feeling like, you know, we've got, I would have preferred if he'd said we've got an edge. (laughs) You know, or we've got something. I would certainly have preferred that, but I can understand from his military mindset why that might be the first word out of his mouth. That doesn't mean I like it, but I can (laughs) I can understand it. Yeah, I think from a writing perspective, that was sort of an elegant little touch to to put those words in his mouth and have him have him sort of echoing what we were getting earlier uh, from the other side. But I mean, in part because we know this character and we've seen him for a long, a long time, you know, we kind of have an idea of where he's coming from. And and the way that I I read it, while I still I still agree that that's a a dehumanizing way to say it. um, I I feel like, you know, he didn't say (laughs) I feel like it's it's even the word is one step up from weapons components, um, Mm -hmm. because I, I felt like his his thought and I know Stephen said you know he's talking about Bester not Lita but I, I really think what he was talking about is not so specifically telepaths themselves but, but telepathy yeah telepathy that that force is the weapon and it will be yes it will be telepaths who who wield that force but they will be wielding that force presumably under their own power and by their own choice because this is an enemy who is taking their kind and you know putting awful things into their heads and doing really bad things to them so why wouldn't telepaths want to to help out and try to fight this enemy so i, I feel like the telepathy itself is the weapon that he was referring to and not the because otherwise he would have said we've got weapons if he was referring to the telepaths telepaths as people so mm-hmm. he says a weapon which i think you know collective noun meaning well telepathy mm-hmm. okay uh last call for any thoughts about this plot line um before we move over to jakar and delin uh couple of quick things, um, just, again, character bits, the way that JMS can continue to showcase characters inside of these plots, um, where the moment when Carolyn has woken up, she is merged with all of the tech in Med Lab, and we've got 
um, Franklin and Garibaldi and Bester all together in the room trying to figure out how to deal with this. And Franklin is, again, approaching it from, you know, the idea of a cure. He tries to tell Carolyn, I can help you. I can help stop the pain, that sort of thing. Um, Garibaldi, you know, is ready with the gun, you know, just in case. He's not going to let his guard down one bit. Uh, and Garibaldi also, you know, deduces that, you know, it's the Psycor badge, not Bester, that triggers her attack. Um, so I love that JMS is able to continue to put these characters together and um, show us who they are, even in the midst of this tense negotiation scene or an action scene or so forth. Oh, one last one last thought about all of this. There is no love there. Uh, Bester says when he talks about the wife and child that uh, mm-hmm. he had referred to in a previous episode. But, um, dude, you're a total creep to have basically taken advantage of somebody who is essentially a prisoner uh-huh. of yours mm-hmm. and to forge a love relationship. Uh, that's that's a that's love in air quotes. I don't think. I don't think there is such a thing as proper consent when you are a really high-ranking cop and your, quote, lover, close quote, is essentially one of your prisoners. That, thank saying. you. That, you've put the, that was one bit that bothered me, and at the time I thought it was the dialogue JMS had chosen to try and have Bester express how he felt because it felt so corny and cliched, and even though Walter Koenig was doing his best, it rang a little false to me. Thank you. I think that's mm-hmm. what was bothering me. Yeah, talk about the the messed up power dynamics there. And but but I do kind of appreciate the fact that uh, you know this is not sort of a classic fridging when you're talking about the fridging trope because he, Besser was already on this path before he discovered that Carolyn was one of the people in there. So mm-hmm. so he's it, it, her being uh, one of these telepaths used as weapons components is not motivating him to go on and do anything differently than he already would have. The only thing is it's providing is basically leverage now for the folks at Babylon Five to yeah. to make sure that. They can keep keep Bester in line. So I mean, it's still not the greatest use of a, a a female character, but it is it 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 doesn't offend me in the way that so many television shows do um, by just you know. And plus, this isn't actually a character that we had come to know and love at all. She's just somebody that appears simply to be uh, a weird in the middle of a machine lady who's hanging from a bunch of cords. Yeah, and I'm and I'm not really criticizing the writing of this episode or the cre- or create or criticizing the creation of the characters and the um, the kind of creepy power dynamic here. Um, I'm just sort of calling it out that this is creepy, and I think that it's intentionally so. We shouldn't <laughs> just um, we shouldn't just feel warm and fuzzy toward Bester because he's got a love interest, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's very appropriate. It all works within what we know of his character so far. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, before we go into spoiler space, let's spend some time with Jakar and Delin, shall we? Yes. Yes, please. <laughs> I'm so I'm just this oh this scene is just one of the standouts for me in in the entirety of the show thus far it just I feel it feels like a pinnacle in so many ways because I I think that those two are probably my favorite um, performers on the show just from a a sheer acting standpoint Mm -hmm. I I think overall. I, I'm happy watching scenes with Jakar and I'm happy watching scenes with Delenn because they are always bringing their A game and elevating the scenes that they are in. 
So when we have this, where it's just the two of them, that is just, that is sheer acting proficiency distilled and and just brought to, to new heights. And I, Stephen actually pointed out that the direction is very, um, it really helps in this scene as well, because you get, uh, they are placing the camera really close to their faces. I mean, on Jakar specifically throughout that scene, Jakar is a character that at times can be very operatic in his his dialogue and mm-hmm. his delivery. And this just, you know, from a directing the actor's perspective is great because it ratchets that down. Um, and then from a directing the camera perspective works really well, too, because he's able to pitch it lower and softer because the camera is closer. And he can be quieter. So there's there's an extra chill to it when he delivers the, you know, I'd have killed you instantly line. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's such a swing far from the way that he has delivered some other really passionate lines that it gives it a little bit of an extra boost and extra impact. And and then you get those wonderful close-ups on Delenn where she is crying and it's not, you know, it doesn't look like like fake stagey crying sometimes sometimes looks it's just these tears happen to be falling out of her eyes because she is feeling very strong emotions and it just oh it cuts to the heart of me i i I adore that scene i like how you see her recognizing that jakar has transformed so much we saw it because we watched him go through you know go through it from within his mind like we got to see that happening firsthand uh delenn really doesn't know about exactly what he's gone through she may have noticed that he has has changed and has volunteered darns to help help defend babylon 5 but at this point she is getting a real close picture of just how much he has he has sort of adjusted to these new surroundings and his his new lease on life because he is absolutely not reacting in the way that he would have previously and i I like seeing him internally wrestling with that like he he still feels those same feelings that he had gotten before but now he recognizes that that's not a proper way to channel the emotion so he is he's holding it in and you know working toward the greater good and his line about you know some must be sacrificed for all to mm-hmm. survive or whatever it is and that being the, the the line that's weighed you know very heavily on him oh it's just it's from the writing to the directing to the acting this is this is just a great 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 scene now i see that this is as much about how we got here Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, just everything. Everything just makes me so happy. Yeah. Happy. This... Happy. Look at all of this pain, you monster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, well, I, it I is do great get, performance. We, it yes, is great I, art. We can appreciate that. I'm a sucker for angst. I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff. So yes, in a very sick way, it does make me happy. I, I own that. Yeah. Uh, same here. Um, that was just a riveting scene to watch. Um, I also like the fact that they lead up to it. You know, the fact that Jakar is pushing harder to get into the alliance. And then we have, um, you know, the next meeting with Sheridan and Delenn, and they're back in his quarters then uh, talking about it. And that scene setting up her discussion with Jakar, I think, is really pivotal as well, uh, because we have Delenn taking, stepping up to take responsibility. She, this was a decision she was a part of, and she is the one who is going to let Jakar know what happened and apologize for it. Um, and Sheridan actually tries to shield her, and his protectiveness comes up. He doesn't want her to do this. He wants to be the one to, to tell him, but Delenn won't let him do it. 
you know, she, this was my this was my decision. It's going to be my responsibility, and I'm going to take it. Um, we I haven't. Think it's, seen- it's important to point out though that I think he wanted them both to because he says we. So it's okay. not like Mr. Big Macho Man saying I'm going to do this to shield you. He just thought that they would do it together because they're a team, and she steps up. So okay. yay for both of them. I think on that score. Yeah, um, and the only thing that sort of made me pause for a second watching this entire episode, the dialogue, the scene between her and Jakar, is the fact that she observes how far he's come felt the teeniest bit patronizing to yes. me, just a tiny mm-hmm. bit. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and then, but she turns around and immediately just asks flat out, she wants his forgiveness, and that, that gives him the opportunity to say, not yet, can't do it yet. So um, that balanced uh, for me very well, showing showing both their characters and how they've developed and how they've come. Yeah, I think patronizing coming from Delenn is is it's still within character because you know yeah. the Mimbari, one of the oldest races, who really feel like they've they've got their stuff together, um, right? But, you know, just the fact that they didn't tell anybody else in the first place and only told Sheridan sort of under, under mm-hmm. duress and kept it from from Jakar for so long. Uh, I, I think that that was another sort of elegant touch in that scene that that she does come off as the tiniest bit patronizing because, yes, she's still treating the other races as if they are children to some extent. Mm-hmm. Yep. Any last thoughts before we go into spoiler space? Um, we have a new set. They right. they repurposed the they repurposed the casino since the casino ah. wasn't being used very much and that is now the war room. Um, Stephen with Stephen quite like that mm-hmm. yeah. yeah with and, its and, and round table they, hey they we just refer, left Avalon they <laughs> refers to the production staff not the you know right we can we can assume that there is still a casino on the station <laughs> that's yes, true that is true uh, but yeah we we have this new uh, area um, the fight is more or less in the open you've got so many staff members going through that war room just like it was another uh cnc so that was cool mm-hmm. um i would like to close with just two final thoughts from steven uh he as we were watching the opening credits he was a little bit miffed that people were you know in the opening credits that the shots of them you know turning their heads towards the camera and all that uh were still in their old earth force uniforms and he <laughs> he decided that he thinks that babylon 5 should be like game of thrones and have the titles updated based on what has happened to the characters in the uh in the course of the story which i think, I think game, game of thrones, thrones has a, has a bigger budget, budget. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well played, you guys. Uh, yes, I rolled my eyes at that. Um, and then just to close, after the episode was done, I said, okay, so what did you think of that? What, what did you think of that episode? And Stephen just said, very good. Very good indeed. Mr. Mike Vehar is a master at his craft. <laughs> yeah, I Isn't think I'm finally... astonishing that you want other directors to step up? It's kind of telling how much better Mike Vehar and Janet Greek are at their game than a lot of the other directors. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the budget again. Yeah. 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 Um, can't think of, uh, as far as pre-spoilers, just uh, the bit where Garibaldi finally makes the connection um, out of the Book of Jaquan. That that little plot thread has been an undercurrent, you know, for the whole season ever since uh, Jakar gave him the book and said, here, read it. It's in Narn. I can't read Narn. Learn. And we see... Garibaldi frantically using a dictionary, trying to double check what he's found out. And then when he does, just, you know, the fact, you know, he gets everybody together and then he's, you know, thumps the book and don't do not thump the book of Chaquan. Um, <laughs> those little bits um, always help. 
always help enhance the story. Yeah, actually, that was... I love how cocky he is in the chair, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's, it is. It's a great character moment on both sides there. But that was that was one part that did confuse Stephen, actually, because he had forgotten all right. about Jakar giving Garibaldi that book. And I had to you know remind actually reminding him didn't work because he simply didn't remember. I just had to tell him this happened before Garibaldi was was given the book and was told he had to read it in the original Narn. And Stephen was like, OK, I believe you. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like you are watching Babylon 5 with Dory. <laughs> no comment (laughs) (laughs) well on that note I think it is time that we uh, dismiss Dory uh, I mean Stephen and uh, (laughs) send him off as we're getting ready to go into a jump gate next time for episode uh, 59 we are going to be doing interludes and examinations that is your homework for next time Uh, we are of course as always, at b5audioguide.com, where you can discuss this episode and many more in spoiler and non-spoiler capacities. Okay, are we ready for a jump gate? Sure. I think we are. All right, we're hopping into a jump gate right now. Oh yeah, don't forget, Twitter and Tumblr, b 5 Guide. And we're back. <laughs> I had to bite my tongue on interludes and examinations because it's yet another title that tells you nothing about what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, So before we talk about anything that involves interludes and examinations uh, or anything else like that, I I do want to point out that twice this season, the sheer coincidence of a relational connection to the story – um, and I do kind of appreciate that this sort of almost prepares us for what is to come. You know, Bester discovers Carolyn has been prepped for jumping into one of these uh, shadow vessels. And Sheridan will discover that Anna is still alive and that she's had much the same kind of experience. Um, <laughs> and we we talked about the personal connection being important. JMS in not telling us the complete story of why Sinclair had to go and why Michael O'Hare had to go, did allude to the fact that you need to have a personal connection to the story for it to be meaningful. So it's not enough that Sinclair would have been around to to fight the Shadow War just out of the goodness of his heart, Um, that JMS described that any effort that he made to make the Shadow War personal for Sinclair would have been a little ham-fisted and clutched on. So instead, you create characters that have a personal connection to the Shadow War, which is what you have with Sheridan. So, yes, it's a big coincidence that um, Carolyn happens to be in there, and that's what makes the war personal for Bester. But just wait a few episodes. It's going to get even more personal even faster with yet another massive coincidence and another secret that Delenn's been holding on to. <laughs> but that one doesn't 
it doesn't feel like quite such a bam coincidence simply because it's been seated almost since the beginning of Sheridan's time on the show. Because, right. you know, we had him holding Morden, uh, you know, against his will and sort of semi against the law simply because uh, he knew that Anna had been on the same ship with him. So we we are. And we know... get introduced like the second episode we have Sheridan. We get this backstory with his sister and the fact that he was married to Anna and that she was her job was uh, an archaeologist to go out to space and do these things. Um, so it, it it's not coincidence to me as much as fulfillment of, of like Erica said, seeds have been planted uh, very well, very deep all along to um, come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, it is, when you think about it, I guess it is a big coincidence. But at the time, we didn't really understand what was going on with the shadows and with Mr. Morden and all that kind of stuff. I think if we had, and we found out that this new guy who just came to the station happens to be married to somebody who is was, you know... Uh, on this planet or on the ship, then then yeah, I think it would have felt like a coincidence. But because of the way that the plot has has sort of been strung out to us bit by bit, it doesn't feel quite so coincidental as as does Carolyn just sort of appearing here uh, for Bester. But, or, but you are right; there there are two big coincidences. I think one of them just is a little bit more smooth than the other. And of course, the one with Bester and Carolyn is pretty much encapsulated in this one episode. It mm-hmm. doesn't it. In it, in it of itself, Bester and Carolyn's relationship does not create ripples through the rest of the story, to my knowledge, if I remember correctly. So it's also easier to tolerate when it's sort of a one-off. Uh, unlike when we find out that Sheridan was originally married in the first place to Elizabeth Lockley, who becomes oh, the next God. captain in the fifth season. And that just feels like a major undercutting. It, that that one felt forced. That one felt yep. hugely forced and maybe part of the reason that season five just feels so clunky in so many ways. Um, so coincidence is a tool for the fiction writer and it's how you use it. Yep. Well said. Well said. <laughs> um, the other things that I wanted to bring up in the spoiler section are the fact that the telepaths and Bester do not become as big a part of the Shadow War itself as you would think coming out of Ship of Tears. Mm -hmm. Uh, How are the cryogenically preserved telepaths going to be used in the future? Not at all. Telepaths, generally speaking, are going to be used to block and interfere with shadow vessels. But these telepaths aren't going to be used until the very end of season four, and they're not going to be used against the shadows. They're going to be used against Clark. Yeah, they are. They really, when it comes down to it, they really are just weapons components. They, you know, and, and I think mm-hmm. I kind of like that because I like the fact that in this show, our heroes don't always triumph in the way that they would like. Dr. Franklin never is able to figure out this new sh- this shadow technology and save these people. It is it's a heartbreaking thing, but I think it's it's kind of a realistic thing when you think about how long the shadows have been around and how much more advanced their technology mm-hmm. must be than Earth technology. I think I think that if Franklin had been able to come up with a way to save these people and make them free again, it that would have rang very false. But I do think that it is an interesting thing that we get this and it's it's like this is this is seeded as if these particular telepaths are going to be major players in the shadow war and then no they're not so i think it's kind of just a a nifty swerve that that you know we're not expecting down the road yeah and we also um if i remember correctly next episode uh we get lita back 
And mm-hmm. what happens is we we realize that Lita, that the Vorlons, who apparently have the same issues about telepathy that the shadows do, it's not something that they are comfortable with. So what do they do? They take one of these telepaths and turn her into essentially their own weapon. Yeah. Um, and sure Lita th- becomes the forefront of um, of the Alliance uh, being able to um, conquer the shadows. Yeah, or, I'm not sure that that's actually the case as far as the Vorlons. Uh, yeah. The Vorlons make telepaths. The Vorlons are yes. responsible for the that's creation tr- of telepaths. As a matter of fact, that's the... That's, that's true. That's sort of the That's sort of the thing that I like about the difference between the Vorlons and the shadows. The Vorlons, having created telepathy and fostering telepaths you know telepathy is control telepathy enforces order um and that bugs the shadows the hell out because Mm -hmm. you know they they they're agents of chaos they you know so i like that i i I like that contrast okay yeah i think there's something in the lurker's guide that that gives the idea that the Vorlons didn't like telepaths either that um, stuck in my head. Um, yeah. The so. thing that I, that actually kind of jumped out to me about this is when we see Bester talking about how the, the future of, of, of the, the universe or whatever is of earth at least is with telepaths because they are just, you know, they're the inevitable evolution of humanity and regular mundanes are going to die out in my head. I'm snickering a little bit going, dude, this is not inevitable evolution. This is, you know, you've been, made the, it was right. the vorlons just screwing around with dna that actually made you uh, what you are and i can't remember if that ever gets laid out to bester and he has to deal with that or not um don't down remember the road, off the top but, of my head yeah but i was just thinking oh you got it all wrong <laughs> bester also really doesn't get super involved in the shadow war mm-hmm. you know your war is my war now uh, but he doesn't get that many opportunities to really be a player in this war. In fact, he uses this war mm-hmm. to get his mitts on Garibaldi. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Ugh. I just, I hate that that plot so much. It just makes me so uncomfortable that, yeah, thinking that, that the, the genesis of it is kind of right here. The fact that they they are now sort of working with Bester and because of that, he's able to get his mitts on Garibaldi and 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 do all of that and make me so unhappy for so long. Yeah, <sighs> and here I was, I, I was thinking about that too as I was watching, trying to think, what was it? What was it? Was it Bester? Was it people working with Bester that got involved in this? Um, you know, what was it that made them decide that it was that they had to infiltrate and take Garibaldi and turn him into their unknowing spy? I, I cannot remember anything from here to Garibaldi's disappearance. I can't remember what might have triggered that. And I'm not sure that there is something. And if not, that that's going to bug me. But at the moment, there may be something that I just don't remember um, from my last time watching. Yeah, I don't remember either, but I'm not I'm not convinced that there needs to be a trigger because I think that Bester is just the kind of Machiavellian character who really wants to make sure that he's got a finger in every pie and is able to keep an eye on things. So, I mean, I, I feel like he probably would have decided to, to nab somebody one way or the other and... And, you know, maybe that there was something that triggered his decision to use Garibaldi in just that way. But the the actual fact of taking someone and and sort of implanting them and and taking over their their brain. Yeah. I'm also trying to remember whether that was Bester's decision. My impression is that it was 
like upper level psychor in general that saw this opportunity and grabbed it. I'm, I'm not sure that it was Bester alone deciding to do it. Yes, Bester, you know, stayed involved once it happened and revealed to Garibaldi at the end what had happened. But, um, but I'm trying to remember. I don't think he was acting alone. We will get to this. Yes, yes, we will. That is true. Any final uh, spoilery thoughts before we uh, close things down and move ahead to interludes and examinations? I got nothing. I'm I'm ready to move on. I mean, I I don't know that I'm ever quite ready to move on to interludes and examinations, <laughs> but you know. Yeah, um, it it's gonna feel watching it this time around. It's gonna feel slightly abrupt um, to me. And I don't remember if this is, you know, master list versus airing order, maybe if we're sort of through that patch. Nope. Um, nope. They, thinking this, about this it. did follow. Okay. Thinking about it right now, it feels slightly abrupt for um, the shadows to break open and start attacking. I get the sense that there was not much time in between that and Sheridan pushing Kosh over the edge into getting involved, getting the Vorlons involved, and then, you know, immediately Kosh gets killed. Um, That part seems natural to me, but it feels like maybe there should have been another episode before that monumental moment to pull in the Vorlons happens, but we will see. I will watch the episode and I will see if I change my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So when next we convene, interludes and examinations will... Unless uh, we have a crisis and somebody gets, uh, you know, accidentally written out of the script or whatever, uh, (laughs) we will be joined. Well, we'll have a special guest next time. (laughs) Hashtag teaser. Hashtag teaser. Uh, That'll be Interludes and Examinations, episode 59 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, which will be winding its way to you in two weeks time or faster if you are watching this in the future. (laughs) Ooh. <laughs> uh, please hang out in our spoiler threads. We'd love to have you talking. Or, or feel free to talk in the spoiler-free threads. You know, help the younger races along, shall we? <laughs> I like it. But until next time, this is Chip and Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And you have been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>